Good morning. As Peter draws his letter to a close, he gives instructions to Christians that have relocated to this region known at that time of Asia Minor. This region would become the cradle of the Christian church, and he urges both the shepherds and the sheep that comprise God's flock in the region of what is now Turkey. He encourages them to adopt Christian attitudes in their dealings with one another. Like Jesus, their good shepherd, he encourages them to act with gentleness and with humility. What it says, let's read First Peter 5, 1 through 11. I'll read and follow along. It's in your worship folder. He writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It would seem these guys having been displaced, are not in well-established churches. They've been relocated from elsewhere into communities where no well-established churches existed. And the need to define the structure of these churches is something that causes Peter to kind of pick that up. And, And he gives them some very basic instructions for how they are to kind of organize themselves. This might be the the first word they have in this area, telling them from an apostle's point of view what to do and telling individuals who had been involved in leadership as elders do it. And, and so the Christian church from its earliest days, when they organized, there wasn't a very concrete, organized, they kind of adopted the Jewish tradition, which was Jews met in family groups of 8 to 12 families that comprised a synagogue, and and those who were the senior individuals in that community were the ones who were the elders. That's the way it worked. That's the way Jews did it. And so the church kind of adopted that. Elders were probably the heads of the houses where the house churches met. They didn't meet in buildings. They met in living rooms and homes and small groups then. And so the ranking senior 
individual in the home was standing, he, they would become the elders of the church that met in that particular locale. So elders were men who, by virtue of their age and prestige of their families, exercised an authority based on seniority and relationships that already existed. People knew who these guys were, and that's why he said, okay, you guys who are known, do what you do, give some leadership and some oversight. And as Peter tells them to do so, he instructs them about the kind of leadership or shepherding that they are to exercise. And he tells them shepherd and kind of do oversight and shepherd willingly, shepherd eagerly, and shepherd by example. First he tells them is that when you shepherd and Exercise leadership, do so willingly. It says exercise over, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. When it talks about not under compulsion, it's the same word that Paul used when he's talking about how giving should happen. Don't give under compulsion, not because of a sense of ought to, should. God will get me if I don't. It's not to be like that. It's to be giving is to be free. And he says the same thing about exercising leadership. It's not to be grudging or compulsory. Um, begrudging surface is possible because when you considered it at the time, in these communities, when you adopted a posture of leadership, you put a target on your back. And I experienced that in a very... Uh, very particular way. Uh, when I was in China, um, there's actually a couple of things. Took some kids on a uh, excursion into China to to see some things, and um, we were in a hotel, and we were going from the hotel, and we had to load the buses, and so I talked to one of the kids who was there. You know, here's my thing. Would you make sure this suitcase? gets into the bus, very direct. You know, I'm a teacher at that time. This is a student, and naturally you think the student would do so. I'm not sure what that student thought. He thought somebody else would do it. So anyways, we're on the bus, and we arrive at the place where we're And my suitcase is way back there. And what I'm wearing for the bus trip that I have to wear for the duration of this educational opportunity is a Calvin and Hobbes, not Calvin and Hobbes, the far side, far side T-shirt. And here's what the T-shirt has. It's the one where the, the deer has the target painted on it. Do you remember what that one says? <laughs> Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. And so here I am. <laughs> so I have to take this T-shirt and this pair of shorts, and, and I have this target on me, which is a little bit disconcerting. Um, Actually, uh, in that place, we experienced some, we followed around a little bit. You know, we saw that when we were at this store or that store, especially at the beginning, we were under surveillance. The Public Security Bureau, they kind of keep tabs on individuals. We were never really in any danger If they found something untoward with us, they would just ship us out and deport us. So that's all that could happen to us. But it was a different thing for those who were nationals. 
And I've talked with some who are nationals. And in China, things are changing drastically. Back then, you really had to be careful about meeting as a group of Christians. And what I'm told now is Christian churches meet openly. And the government does not put the kibosh on that. It's, they say that there will even be buildings and churches at some point. But now, there's not, but I was talking to somebody recently, but still they were targeted. And this is some individuals who were in leadership who attracted the watchful eye of those who, and this is what is, would happen with individuals who exercise leadership. They would be noticed as doing so in this region to Peter writes, and, and therefore the individuals who would, they wouldn't run forward to exercise leadership because in so doing they would be putting a target on them, not the kind of target I had in a t-shirt, a real target. Um, he tells them to shepherd willingly in spite of this and gives Jesus as an example of willing service. Um, you lay down your life in order to serve others. He tells them to shepherd eagerly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The practice of financially compensating church leadership arose early. Paul said those who do teaching are worthy of what they get. Give them the ability to do that. And the problem existed, though, that those who oversaw a Christian community sometimes misappropriated its resources for their own gain. That happened. That's why Paul says, don't get involved in this leadership thing in order to make a buck. Don't do it. Uh, but that did happen. Judas Iscariot's a case in point, right? God used to pat his pocket. And, and that happened in the early church, and it wasn't uncommon. That's why Peter indicates... Um, don't do that. Um, the term eagerly was used in secular writings of a, a person who was somebody who had resources and they were free with them. So if they were going to build a statue, this individual would be eager. Yeah, let me, I'd like to fund that or this project or that project. That's the word eager was used of that type of person. And that's what Peter says. You know, you don't exercise spiritual leadership to get. There might be some compensation, but you don't do it for that reason. You, you do it in order to, to be able to give. Um, it says shepherd willingly, shepherd eagerly, and then shepherd by example. It says not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This echoes the teachings of Jesus himself, who was the prototypical um, leader who was a servant leader. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. As a book was written, that in the Christian church, the way you become great is you descend into greatness. Greatness is not exercised from above. Greatness is exercised from below. You descend into greatness. You stoop and serve into greatness. And that's what Jesus indicated. Um, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Just as we go by this word, it's... Uh, we talk about it every once in a while in terms of a ransom. And it's 
kind of ascribe to God that that's what happened with Jesus. And the word ransom literally means, again, this is just a little bit of an aside, ransom the word literally means to loosen or untie something. That's what the word means. And to take it as a ransom, that's a word that describes one means by which people are released or untied, right? And so if you have someone under your bondage, and if I want to release or untie that person from that bondage, one thing I might do is figure out how much that person's worth and pay you off. Right? This is a ransom. You might have captured them. I give you the ransom money, and then the person's released. And so this word then, ransom, indicates that type of transaction. But again, when we think of God, it gets a little bit fuzzy. Who does God pay off? So does he take money out of one pocket and put it in another? Is, is there anybody bigger than God? Does God have to pay somebody off? And when you think of it, when God released and untied the Israelites, who did he pay off? Did any Egyptians get any money? They get paid off? No, God, God doesn't release or untie by bartering. He releases and unties by a dis- demonstration of power. He doesn't pay anyone off, and that's why the idea that God sends Jesus, and Jesus is some type of ransom, a payoff. Understand it, but it kind of doesn't make sense, does it? Because then God has to take that and give it to someone, and, and he's just, and yeah, anyways, just as we go by, just sliding by. <clears throat> he tells them, um, After telling the shepherds to shepherd willingly, eagerly, and by example, then Peter turns from the shepherds who exercise oversight to the sheep. This is what he said. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And again, younger and elder, it describes age, but in this context, it's not just age. It's elders who exercise leadership and the younger men in that place And again, if you're a woman within Judaism and that whole tradition, you couldn't exercise leadership. In Paul's church, you could, except for a while when he put the kibosh on it because of what was happening in the Roman Empire. And we talked about that, that a a woman, Paul says, I am not allowing a woman to teach or exercise authority. And part of the reason that's happening is because of the Roman Empire and the way they saw religions who allowed for that to happen. They put the kibosh on them. And so in the early church, then, what they had to do is rein in the leadership of women for that purpose in order to allow the roots of the church to go down. Anyways. Um, after telling them, but he says, likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. The contrast is between those who, in light of their seniority and their standing, are in a position to exercise leadership. And so those are the elders, and those who are younger, those who are within and part of that home group, come in. And what he's telling you who are younger... Be subject and submit to those who are older. So um, you don't have to polish their boots or light their pipe. But when they say something and when they make a determination, be subject to them. Uh, if Peter's readers were recently displaced, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Because they come from other places. 
And so there might have been some people that exercise leadership in other places come to this new community and they don't know many people. And there's individuals that have been in churches. And so he said, well, I, I don't know this guy. I'm not going to submit to him. I don't even know what he's about. What Peter was suggesting here, he said, put some kind of leadership in place. Elders, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta lead. And because that's the type of thing there, that there is a loose organizational structure for a purpose. And so Peter encourages them to follow through with it. He instructs the elders that they must begin or resume their function as elders of the Christian believers in their new location. Christians who have been displaced, perhaps submitted to individuals there, they're saying do so again. Um, and he, Peter promises that those who bear the burden of faithfully, faithfully shepherding God's flock eagerly as role models will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, there seems to be, again, when you look at the Bible, there is a focus on not just elders, but just leadership in general. When you look at it, the minor prophets, when they put the finger on what's wrong, they put the finger on leadership. Leadership is tagged. Uh, Micah, Nahum, they talk about it. Jeremiah, Isaiah, the major prophets, they talk about it as well. Jesus understood that the threat that the lack of leadership created. Uh, if you know something about sheep, sheep that are untended are in really a really dangerous place. Sheep require a lot of care. And untended sheep don't end up in a good spot. Here's what Jesus said relative to the threat that a leadership vacuum posed. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. It's in your worship folder, Matthew 9. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. So he's looking at the state of these individuals and they were just running around doing their daily stuff. They were just buying things, doing business, meeting friends. He was just observing a community and a religious community. But what Jesus observed, he could see not just their outward functioning, but what was happening. And they were, if you put your finger on the pulse, they were harassed and helpless. They were distracted and thrown down. Spiritually, they really weren't in a good spot. And again, it's, I think Jesus... Example is telling. You could tell the difference we've talked about before between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd because a bad shepherd will talk about bad sheep. And so what a bad shepherd looking at that would have said, boy, look at those sheep harassed and helpless. Come on, get with it. You know, what are you doing on your back? And Jesus doesn't do that. A bad shepherd focuses on bad sheep. What does a good shepherd focus on? Bad shepherds. Sheep need care. When that care is not in place, sheep are going to be harassed and helpless. That's why Jesus says, there's sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is not with people's responsiveness. It's not a receiver issue. It's a transmitter issue. It's not a sheep issue. It's a shepherd issue. And what he ends up saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. It's, it's, there's a lack of qualified, gentle, humble individuals who are willing to exercise leadership willingly and not grudgingly. And by example, as the good shepherd, Jesus came to fix the problem created by bad shepherds. Look what it says in Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God. Again, here's one of these prophets, and he looks at Israel at the time, and they're not in really good shape, but look at who gets tagged. Ah, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, they were, people were roaming around. And again, if you go to a place where there's a house and kids are running all over the place, and you look around and there's no parents around, what would you say? You rotten kids. No, you say, where are your parents? The same thing, the sheep running around. And what God says, where are the shepherds? And then he goes on. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. What it means when it says, I will require my sheep at their hand, there will be an accounting, and the sheep won't pay the price. The shepherd will. I don't know what that means, but the Bible is very direct about there is an exposure at a spiritual leadership level. I don't know what it looks like, but there is an accountability that that the Bible talks about, and this is what happens in this context. Um, I'm against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Jesus was gentle. But a gentle shepherd is not weak. Do you agree? You know what gentle means, by the way? Gentle is a domesticated animal, like a dog, like a watchdog. And if you have a dog, say a pal, not a chihuahua, not a little one. It's like the dog that kind of runs around here. That Isaac, that that black dog, big. You know, I don't know what kind of what kind of dog is that? Rottweiler. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a gentle dog. I wouldn't want that dog to be mad at me. But you can go up to that dog and pet it. Any of you afraid with your kids? You know, he could swallow your kids in a bite. But yeah, but but he's but he's a very gentle dog. He's very gentle. He's, he's you're not afraid. Yeah. But then if he were to be riled up, you know, that's gentle. Someone, something that is appropriately gentle with family, but appropriately ferocious when needs to be. I imagine that dog would be a good watchdog. And that's what gentle means. Jesus was very gentle until he met a wolf. And then he was appropriately assertive and aggressive. There's no lack of gentleness here. When you're a shepherd and a chief shepherd, in order to be gentle, you need to be protective. You can't be Casper Milktoast, and Jesus wasn't. Um, he was very direct. And the Bible talks about the unpardonable sin. And how many of you have committed it? 
<laughs> Here's what it, I'll, I'll talk about the other. I hope I didn't. I bet you some of you have wondered about that. It's very common to be, geez, what is it? I hope I haven't done it. I think the unpardonable sin is a leadership issue. What ended up happening? Jesus did a bunch of miracles. And it was very clear that they were supernatural. It was very clear that he was God's representative. What individuals did at that time, if you are a sheep, you're going to look to the shepherd to try to determine, well, what do you think? And so they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, oh, wow, that unbel- that's, that's, wow. And then they look to their, those in positions of leadership and the Pharisees and Sadducees. What, gee, what do you think? And they say, it's, he's doing it by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And at that point, Jesus looks from them, the sheep. He eyeballs the Pharisees and the leaders who spoke that. And this is what he said. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. And I think he looks at the crowd in general. And then what he does, his face pivots. And he looks right at them. And this is what he says to the leaders. He says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Who was saying he has an unclean spirit? They were. So who committed the unpardonable sin? They did. And can it be committed? I don't know if it can be committed now. This is a very specific juncture in salvation history where it goes from one thing to another. So at whatever rate, it is something that is a leadership issue because sheep will look to shepherds. And Jesus is looking at these sheep. He cares enough about the sheep to hold the shepherd accountable that is misleading them. Church leadership was coveted by Jewish Christians. Again, if you were a Jew living in a Gentile world, your ability to have a piece of the leadership pie was pretty small. If you were a Jewish Christian, you could be, if you tried hard enough, you, and if it was important to you, you could be a leader in a Christian church. And apparently that was happening. Jesus' half-brother James, who wrote the letter of James, he had some very strong things to say. He said, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And the same thing. James, he, 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 he talked about the problems that a leadership vacuum creates. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you, define, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Disorder is chaos. Every evil practice is every evil practice. All evil things. And what James does, he traces evil. And he looks at what happens up here, and then he traces it, and he he traces it, and, and it simplifies. It goes from lots of things, branches, to bigger branches, to a trunk, to a root system. And what is it, the root system? Two things. Envy, harsh zeal, 
That's what envy is. And the envy and jealous ambition, selfish ambition. What selfish ambition is not just general selfishness. Here's what selfish ambition means in the context. Let's say I am an aspiring leader in a house church. And let's say, who am I going to pick on? Of course, Travis. <laughs> it just comes with the territory. Travis is the church leader of another house church. And I want a slice of the leadership pie. So I say, you know, by the way, Travis is a pretty good guy. He he does work for the Postal Service. No, that should say something. No, Henry. No, that doesn't say anything bad. But I would, he's not very wise in understanding. You know, but at least not as wise in understanding as I am. And this is what's happening. They're having turf battles. And what James does, he looks at the things that exist and what he points to, my attitude, is the reason for disorder and every evil practice. When leaders are vying for one another, like a political campaign, there's disorder in every evil practice. Oh, what do you say, Mike? What are you going on and on? All I'm saying, and again, in terms of how it applies, those who are in positions of spiritual authority and misuse that position, fail to serve, I'm not sure what it'll look like. But there's an accountability that comes upon that level that the sheep don't feel. The shepherds, are, okay, at any rate. Um, Peter advises, advises shepherds to be gentle. He, all, he also, also encourages both sheep and shepherd to be humble. Humble. What it says, let's read um, from verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. By the way, that's a statement that you can find in the Old and New Testament. There's some differences between the Old and New. This is someone that spans both. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter instructs that all, both shepherd and sheep, clothe themselves with humility with regard to one another. Roman citizens, holy smokes, they had a really difficult time with humility. Just didn't like it. That was something in their culture. Humility was a lowly slave mentality. What humility looked like was this. It's head down. It's, and the Romans, they epitomized head up and possibility and the world is our oyster and slave mentality and and they had a very difficult time swallowing the biblical focus on humility. But it's not that they didn't understand it. To be humbled is to, again, understand or come to experience that I can't use what I have to get what I want. Humility was the experience of a slave. The inability to leverage material, spiritual, social resources to turn the hands of government and justice in my favor. If you were a slave, you had no access. You, it, you couldn't use your money. You couldn't use your power. You had no levers. Nothing with which you could 
leverage to get what you want. You were humbled. Humility was not self-denigrating. It was nothing. Humility at their time was, I am busted. I have, I am existing in this place where I can't protect myself from individuals who want to take a shot at me. If a master wants to take a shot at me and he does so, I have no court to go to. If I walk into a court, they're going to say, I'm sorry, you're a slave, aren't you? Yes, you are. Okay, you have no bearing here. We're not going to indict your master because you have no legal bearing. That's what it meant to be a slave, and Rome hated it. We're not very crazy about it here either, are we? We're like Rome. We're very powerful. We're the most powerful nation that's ever walked the face of the earth. And we don't like humility. And again, not, not, I'm not just saying you. Humility's tough. And all they want us to do is to understand what it means. Humility is not a nice thing. It's necessary. But humility is associated with experiencing exclusion and not really being able to push back. Um, Roman citizens didn't like it. True humility flows from recognizing one's dependence on God. It's expressed by the acceptance of that role. How can you accept a role like that? Really? You certainly, and he doesn't say, you look for opportunities to be humbled. Don't look for difficulties. But when they come, what Peter indicates, accept them. Accept them. On what basis? When you are targeted and excluded or not included, it might be overt or covert, at some level you feel disconnected. Feeling disconnected is an awful thing to feel. It's an awful thing to feel. Some of us, we, we handle it one way. Some of us, because we don't like to be excluded, we never Seek to be included because it's just safer to stay in the periphery. It's safer here. So I'm just never going to really open up. Or Some of us, we don't deal with the fear of being disconnected that way, but we're very active and we make our presence felt and we do and we make it so that others can't exclude. But however we deal with it, when we experience the inability to pull levers, what do you do? Well, what do you do? When you can't push buttons and pull levers. Well, you really just can't make them see it your way. There's an exclusion, a lack of inclusion. What do you do? You know, it's natural. We complain to somebody else about them. We talk about them. Again, you know what Peter says? Accept difficulty. How are we supposed to accept that? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what happens when you're excluded? You don't feel cared for. You don't feel cared for. And what Peter is trying to get them to understand, and we've talked about it before, Jesus understands how that feels. What, how what feels? To feel excluded. To feel disconnected. To know he's valued and to be devalued. To have individuals take shots at him. He understands how it feels. He understands how disconnection feels. 
What are we supposed to do? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When Peter says, after you've suffered for a little while, at some point, God will switch the price tags. That will happen. It will happen. And those who accepted, like Jesus, and cast anxieties on him. You can, by the way, you can carry your anxieties. You can carry them with you. You can cast them on him. Have you developed the ability to be honest with him? Sometimes you think, I, well, God, you know what, I shouldn't feel this way, so I'm not even going to talk to you about it. When you cast your anxiety upon him, you've got to talk to him about it. You've got to be honest. And it's got to be more than, God, thank you for today, or our Father who art in heaven. You know, those are good, that's fine. It's got to be honest at some point. And that's a growth step that we learn in our Christian life. Be honest with him. You know what? You know what? We talked about four steps, and we talk about them. I look at me. I call them the four steps of transformation. I look at me, you look at me, you speak to me, I speak to you. I look at me, you look at me, you speak to me, I speak to you. How does that work? Here's how it would work. You're excluded, dissed. You look at yourself, and what you're going to experience, there's different things happening. And if you talk to them honestly, what you're going to say you know what, God, I, I don't know, that feels terrible. I hated what just happened. I don't like it. I feel small. I feel embarrassed. I feel red. I feel outside of things, and I feel like I probably shouldn't feel this way. I feel like I should probably be walking upright and proud and not have this even bother me, but it does bother me. What's that called? It's called being honest. I look at me. Then you look at me. Jesus understands and you know what you could do? Jesus, I think, he would say, I see you. I see you. I understand how that makes you feel, that you both want to go toward them and away from them. I understand what it's like to feel disconnected. I understand how you feel. I see you. I see you. I see you. You're not a stranger to me. I know why you're pulled towards and away. I understand exactly. And I sympathize with you. That's what the Son of God says. I know how it feels. I know how it feels to walk into a home and to feel both connected and disconnected in that home. I know how it feels to have brothers who both love you and just can't get you. I know what it feels like. I see you. I sympathize. I deal gently with you. What he says, really. When you're honest with him and he sees and sympathizes and deals gently, he's not going, he's not getting upset. What he's doing, he deals gently with you. You know why? Because you're a sheep and he's a shepherd. And then the sympathy of the son, the sovereignty of the father. And here's where the father comes on the tail of the son and says, I want you to listen to me. I think this is what the father would say. Having experienced the sympathy, now I look at me, you look at me, you see, sympathize, deal gently, now you speak to me. What does God say to you? What does he say? You know what he says? Be still. Be still. 
Let your arms hang limp at your side. Don't rush at anything. Put your, put your phone down for a second. Put your to-do list down for a second. Just for a second. Be still. Don't try to rush at anything. Don't contain anything bad. Don't retain anything good. Don't be so driven. Be still. And that's what he says. I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will never leave you. I will never cast you adrift. I will never forsake you. And you know what? You are on a crash course with good, and nothing can get in the way. Okay? I look at me. You look at me. You speak to me. You know what happens now? We speak to him. And now we're, we don't feel quite so disconnected, do we? We don't feel quite as disconnected. God, I'm thankful that you understand. Would you give me the strength to be the person you want me to be? I don't sometimes, I, and you know the reason why you talk to him? It's so that the tension completely disappears, right? It's, it's, you know, it's gone. It's gone. And if, and if it's not gone, you're not a Christian. You know, because if you talk to him and if, if there's any tension there, no, it, you don't go it to eliminate the tension, you do it to endure it. And so I talk to him. And you know what? I feel a little bit better. I got enough for today. We might have to have this discussion again tomorrow. You know, you're going to have to see me again tomorrow and speak to me, but that's okay. I've got enough for today. You know, that's the way it works. That's the way it works, day at a time. Um, that's where humility comes from. Humility is the experience of a child who knows that the father is behind. You know what it says in, I forget which text, you can let your Hands hang up at your side, which is the physical be still. This is what be still looks like. Let your hands hang limp at your side. This is not comfortable. We're usually doing something with our hands. So to let your arms hang limp at your side feels really kind of weird. And what it says, God says, you can let your hands hang limp at your side because I will never let my hands hang limp at mine. Never. And so we can afford it. we got a dad who has our back and our front and our sides. And that's where humility ultimately comes from. This three marks of humility, accept difficulty. To be humble means to accept things. Um, the command to be humbled under God's mighty hand is to... Be honest about something, but not give in to railing. You know, why me? And it's to express. And um, although the exaltation is in the future, and it is, God's going to switch the price tags. Not now. Uh, P- Peter would accept circumstances, understanding you're going to be in a really different place a hundred years from now, and you're not going to remember that slight at the office. To tell you the truth. And you're not going to be concerned about your retirement in 100 years. It's just not going to be a deal. So live in the light of eternity. It says, resist the devil, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion. By the word, by the way, that word adversary is someone who opposes you in a courtroom. It's somebody who brings you to trial. And so they indict you for kind of doing something on their lawn. So this isn't the judge. This is not somebody in authority. It's somebody who just brings a charge against you, and they're your opponent in the courtroom. It says, uh, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be sober-minded is the opposite of a state of mind caused by drunkenness. Be sober-minded. Watchful is presupposes um, a state of mind that can't exist if you're drunk. If you're drunk, you're uninhibited. That's what alcohol does. It releases inhibitions. So you just, just, just whatever comes to your mind, you can't be sober-minded if you're drunk. So spiritually, it's arguing for a state of mind that's not reactive, you just don't go with the first thing you think about. You take time to consider it. One of the one of the things that is an important thing in terms of spirituality, inhibit an immediate response. Take time to consider what's happened, what is happening, what will happen. Take time to look at you. Have him look at you. Have him speak to you. Speak to him. Take time. And when you do that, that's what leads to being sober-minded and watchful. Um, The place Peter learned this lesson, very difficult. Very difficult. Remember when Jesus said, well, look what it says. We kind of... Move towards finishing up. Simon, Simon, Jesus said, Satan has demanded to have you. We've talked about this before. The word demanded, it's not demanded. Literally, asked. And we've talked about this before. Um, Satan is not God's opponent. Satan is a tool in God's hand. He asked permission. So in that sense, whatever he does is something that God has authorized. Why in the world would God authorize something like that? You know what Peter needed to learn? Well, what did Peter need to learn? Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Did he feel like he was ready? Did he? Yes. How powerful were his feelings? Amazingly powerful. He felt love and devotion. He said, I don't know about all those guys, <laughs> but I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. What would you call that? Honesty? Wait, wouldn't you call it? Humility. I can use what I have to get what I want and what you want. Thankfully enough. And what did he need to learn? Humility. And who was God's tool to teach it to him? The devil. Put him in a place. And it went into up saying, um, I pray for you, Jesus said, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Humility means that we can't use what we have to get what we want. And this is what 
Jesus learned Satan is not, again, not God's opponent here, and I think ultimately anywhere. Satan does things, but who is pulling the strings? Satan does things. Who is pulling the strings and pushing the buttons? Are you ever in a place where Satan can get at you and accomplish something in your life that God is not allowing? Not possible. Not possible. Satan is a created being. God's the creator. God is not in a fight with with Satan. Can't be. Can't be. Satan is a, a created thing. Anyway. Um, resist the devil. Accept difficulty. Trust God. Because God is so sovereign over hardship. They suffer. They can trust him. And Come on up, Devin. They can trust him to put things right. Um, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, Peter experienced that too, didn't he? What ended up happening, ends up saying that Paul says, I, I write to you what I first heard that Jesus died. He rose again, and he appeared to Peter, then to the disciples. They had a conversation, and he felt strengthened and confirmed. He knew that he had learned a, diff- a difficult lesson, but Jesus never left him, never left him. And it was a, a lesson that Peter remembered. And so when he's encouraging these individuals, he remembers what he learned, and he tries to pass it on to them. Father, Christian attitude is, is to be like Jesus. And as he himself expressed, I'm gentle and humble in heart. Thank you for that and for the fact that we do have a shepherd who watches over us. And in light of that, we can experience that. And as we experience his gentleness and his humility, that we're able to turn around and, and express that horizontally. I pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding of our good shepherd so that we would be uh, a flock that honors him. In Jesus' name, amen.